0: Psalm 88 is our scripture this morning, if you'd like to open your Bibles there, or navigate on your device, Psalm 88. The topic, the psalmist describes his suffering as being in total darkness. The title of our message, Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. Let's pray together. Father, what a joy to come together this morning and worship You, to lift hearts and voices in praise together with others who love You, who are the called according to Your purpose. We know that You receive our praise as incense into heaven. It's something beautiful to You and wonderful to You. It's not about talent or ability, Lord. It's it's just about the submitted hearts and the fact that You love us and that we were born to love You. I pray now, Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, that as you promised, your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And with him teaching us, we would be greatly filled and encouraged. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agree, said. amen. If you like to read books, it's getting harder to choose a good one. One estimate says that up to one million new titles are published each year. Publishers try to entice you to read their book by putting endorsements on the back cover. If someone popular or knowledgeable whom you respect endorses the book, you just might give it a a one-in-a-million read. In the Bible, we think of the Psalms as one book with 150 chapters. Let's imagine for a moment each Psalm is a standalone book on the shelf at Barnes & Noble. You're trying to decide which Psalm to read, and you grab Psalm 88. If you looked on the back cover, these are the endorsements you'd read by reputable Christian commentators. Derek Kidner says, this is the saddest prayer in the Psalter. H.C. Leupold says, it is the gloomiest psalm found in Scripture. The psalmist is as deeply in trouble when he has concluded his prayer as he was when he began it. J.J. Stewart Perrone says, this is the darkest, saddest psalm in all the Psalter. It is one wail of sorrow from beginning to end. John Phillips says, There is scarcely a glimmer of hope anywhere. It is full of dejection, despair, death. The very last word of the psalm is darkness. Marvin Tate says, Psalm 88 reminds us that life does not always have happy endings. Put that back and go for Psalm 150, right? That's what I'm thinking. Unless, of course... You too are in a dark time and feel as though you are as deeply in trouble when you have concluded your prayer as when you began it. J.N. Darby said of Psalm 88, One time this was the only scripture that was any help to me because I saw that someone had been as low as that before me. You're going to need Psalm 88, if not today, one low dark day. Now, since the psalmist mentions darkness twice, I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, look through the dark to your salvation. And number two, live with the dark in your supplication. Take a look in verse one at our salvation. You know that David didn't write all the psalms in the book of Psalms. He wrote about 75 of them. Other authors include Asaph, who wrote 12. The sons of Korah wrote 11. Solomon wrote two of the psalms. Moses wrote one. Ethan the Ezraite wrote one. 47 of the Psalms are anonymous. And then there's Psalm 88. Who is the psalmist we find in so much sorrow? Well, in verse 1 it says it's a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, to the chief musician, set to Mahalath Lianath, a contemplation of Haman the Ezraite. O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. Haman the Ezraite, a descendant of Korah, is the most famous Bible character you've never heard of. Here's a synopsis of his life from one resource uh, resource I consulted, looking at all that's said about him in Scripture. Haman was from the family of Korah. He was the grandson of Samuel, the final judge of Israel who anointed King Saul and King David. Haman's family was well known. It's mentioned in 1 Chronicles 25. His musical family of 14 sons and three daughters were prominent during the reign of King David. Haman and his family were present when the Ark of the Covenant was brought to Jerusalem. There he was uh, formally dressed, he sang, and played instruments. Haman worked closely with King David. He's listed as one of three main musicians appointed by King David, and I quote, for the ministry of prophesying accompanied by harps, lyres, and cymbals. He was a songwriter and musician, He's named a seer in First Chronicles 25. He was also a sage, dispensing wisdom. It seems he was still serving during the time of Solomon, son of David. Haman was considered very wise. Solomon, the wisest of all, was compared to Haman. It says in First Kings 4, he was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan the Ezraite, wiser even than Haman. And, and so a, a lot of super accomplishments and a great lineage. Haman's only known song is Psalm 88, but he was no one-hit wonder. He had an amazing spiritual career as a Levite, a musician, a seer, a sage, a songwriter, a godly father, and a man of influence during the golden age of Israel. Nevertheless, he suffered greatly, it appears, his entire life. Now, here he addressed God as, O Lord, God of my salvation. It's been called the only truly positive statement in the psalm, But it's a big one. It's not just an opening line to Haman's prayer. It's not just an introduction. It's his theology. It's what he believes that affects how he behaves. Let's start with Haman's declaration, God of my salvation. Only four words, but worthy of many sermons. It's a declaration that God saves. He works in history through providence to save his people for eternity and to deliver them along the way there. Haman could cite Noah and his family during the flood, or the nation of Israel being freed from bondage in Egypt. On a more personal level, he could cite Job, a man who suffered incredibly in the will of God, who was then delivered. All of these would be known to him uh, in the Jewish scriptures, uh, in terms of those that God had saved and delivered. Our God saves, but you'll notice that in each of the cases we mention, there was a careful measuring out of suffering before God delivered his saved people. Noah worked on the ark many decades amid the ridicule of his peers. After they were safe in the ark, it must have been nonetheless a wild water adventure as the springs of the deep burst open and the rains fell. It was not, as we would say, smooth sailing. It was quite uh, torrential. And um, with all of his faith, I mean, put yourself on the ark. I, I think there's some, um, there's probably some, if I can be so bold, puking going on. Uh, I mean, it's, 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 it's a deliverance, but it's very difficult. Israelites cried out to God 400 years before he sent them their deliverer. And when God sent him, he was a baby in danger of being killed. After Moses had grown to 40 years old, would still be another 40 years before his confrontation with Pharaoh. That confrontation at first led to even greater hardship for a time. And then finally, the death angel came, slaying all the firstborn. Sure, the Jews were safe inside their homes, protected by the blood of the Passover lamb, but that had to be one terrifying night. Uh, None of them had any idea what a death angel was, and there must have been terrible moans and screams throughout all of Egypt as the firstborn of the Egyptians Were killed. Job's suffering lasted at least a month, probably longer. We can deduce that from internal clues in the book. It undoubtedly seemed like an eternity to Job as he sat in the ash heap scraping himself. Haman knew God as the one who saves. He might deliver in a month. He might deliver over decades or over centuries. But since it is his nature to save, he can't not deliver you. I don't think we can ever stress too much that God saves. While admittedly the rest of the psalm will express incredible suffering, God's salvation is more than just a high point. It is the point. It's why the Apostle Paul could declare and remind us, and I quote, Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. No matter the intensity or the duration of your suffering, It is all a light affliction for a moment compared to eternity. And this is what Haman is declaring in his statement that God is his salvation. He is his salvation and with salvation comes deliverance in God's time. We must always look at our lives with the future as our starting point. It gives our suffering context and meaning. And it fosters endurance, patient endurance that can be infused with grace. You and I, if you're a Christian, you know where you're going. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, personally and individually. And you're going to be there with me. He calls it a mansion in heaven. We read about the new Jerusalem in the book of the Revelation. And so I need to think about where I'm headed, where I'm definitely headed, uh, as God continues to perfect me and bring me to that place. I can't... Uh, look ahead just to my earthly life, I have to look back over it from my heavenly perspective. Haman called God, God of my salvation. While Haman did not have the fuller revelation of God that we enjoy today, he believed in a personal, living God who had a relationship with him. He could call him mine. Haman wasn't saved merely because he identified with God's chosen nation. He knew God, and God knew him, and saved him the way we are all saved by believing Him, by grace, through faith. Because Haman was grounded in God's personal salvation, he could call Him Lord. It's a word of trusting submission. The God of my salvation has lordship over my life, and I can trust Him to order it for my greatest good and His greatest glory. We all know that God sees farther than I down the path I'm on into my future. He knows what is needful for me, and what is necessary for me spiritually. I do not, I cannot. In the sci-fi genre, a character often goes backward or forward in time to try to change something. At first, they're elated to see the effect of their efforts. Their loved one remains alive, the disaster is averted. But soon they find that much more has changed, and usually it's for the worst, causing even more suffering. We cannot possibly see the far-reaching effects some of our prayers might have if they were all answered the way we desire them to be at the time. It's why the understanding within which we must pray must always be, not my will, but thy will be done. Thy will be done isn't a cop-out. It's not added to prayer because we don't have enough faith. It's there as a safety feature so we don't ruin God's plans for us and others by demanding our own will. We talked a little bit about this last week in our study in James. If God had answered every one of your prayers, you'd be in a bad place today. Think of some of the crazy things you've prayed for and how thankful you are that God circumvented them by his providence to give you something sometimes better, always more necessary and needful for your growth and for the good of others. As we read Haman's prayer, remember that through it all he was submitted to the will of God, submitted to the lordship of the God who saved him, and who he knew would sooner or later deliver him. And so as we get into verses 2 through 18, we're going to live with the dark in our supplication. I got to wondering what kind of adjustments our bodies would make if we suddenly had to live in near total darkness. One researcher claimed we would eventually adjust to a 48-hour day in which we would stay awake for 36 hours and sleep for only 12 hours. And they'd be a horrifying 36 hours because we would experience terrifying hallucinations because our brain isn't used to not seeing things that we would normally see in the light, so it would create its own objects. Anybody have night terrors? Nightmares? 36 hours of nightmare (laughs) is what we're looking at if you live in the dark. Nycultopia is the proper name for night blindness, even though I mispronounced it. It's a condition making it difficult or impossible to see in relatively low light. It's described as, and I quote, "...insufficient adaptation to darkness." Now, we're all going to experience darkness at times, and by that you know I mean spiritual darkness, as we find ourselves in some severe trial. We don't want to have insufficient adaptation to that darkness. Psalm 88 is great eye salve to prevent night blindness. Without it, you're just going to hallucinate terrible thoughts about God and about yourself as your mind fills up the darkness with images of things that are not there. And so as verse 1 ended, we read, I have cried out day and night before you. It's what we might call call applied theology. Because God is my salvation, I can see through the dark by praying to Him. As we read the rest of the psalm, keep that in mind as Haman prays. He says in verse 2, Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. One commentator I read described the character of his upcoming prayer this way. He said, It seems that the psalmist here ransacks the vocabulary of gloom and bitterness to describe his hopeless plight. His is definitely a terminal case, he feels, as if he were on the critical list in the isolation ward of a hospital for incurables. The only thing left is the morgue, and it is only a matter of time before the sheet will be drawn over his face and he will be carried away. If you think it is somehow wrong or sinful to be this low, remember Haman was no spiritual lightweight. I read you his resume. As Darby said in his quote, there are times it helps us to realize someone else, someone spiritual, was this low. And so it's very interesting the way God has set this up. Once you research who Haman was, you find out he was an incredible, what we would call spiritual dude. Singing songs to the Lord, rubbing elbows with David, and related to Samuel, uh, 14, 17 kids, all musicians. He's there when the ark is brought back. He's fantastic. And at the same time, he can utter some of the most pathetic words in the scripture. To borrow a line from the country song, we have friends in low places, low spiritual places. Uh, Haman is just one of them. He may be the lowest, but there are others scattered on the pages of both testaments. We don't know what Haman was suffering from or with. We're not told. I think it's good that we don't know because it allows us to relate to him better in our own suffering. You know how people like to go to groups where other people have experienced or are experiencing the same condition or illness? Because there's a there's a thought in which if you don't know what I'm going through, you can't feel what I'm feeling and we can't relate. There may be some truth to that. I don't know if they've researched that out or not. But with Haman, he says, hey... I am as low as a person can go. And this has been going on my whole life. And he doesn't give us his condition. And that's a good thing because we can relate to him no matter what it is we're going through. Verse 3. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to the grave. We would like to be free from anxiety and resting in the Lord. Suffering comes along and robs us of rest by multiplying our troubles as we attempt to deal with it. Haman's suffering was terminal. He had gone from thinking we're all going to die one day to facing the prospect of his own imminent death. He'd been sick, it seems, for his entire life, but now his death was imminent. We're told to live each moment as if it would be our last. I've said that before. You've probably told someone that. It's generally a great theory for Christians. We believe in the imminent rapture of the church so the Lord could come for us at any moment. This could be our last moment. Or we could die and uh, be absent from the body and present with the Lord. And so, philosophically, we know this is true. And we tell ourselves, let's live as if this was our last moment. And then somebody gives you a diagnosis that you only have a few moments left. You really are going to die. And then you begin to live as if you're going to die. There's a lot of difference between the philosophical understanding you're going to die and the actual understanding that it's going to happen. So while uh, we think we are living each moment to the fullest, uh, a lot of times we're really not. I don't know that that can be overcome. There's just something about knowing that something terminal has hit you that changes your way of thinking. And usually uh, in a good way. Verse 4. I am counted with those who go down to the pit... I am like a man who has no strength, adrift among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and who are cut off from your hand. Now these Old Testament statements about the pit and the grave, they need to be understood in the context of what had been revealed by God to his people. There's no doubting they had a limited knowledge of what happens after death. Even so, I don't think that Haman was acting like he didn't know anything about the afterlife. After all, David was a collaborator and a contemporary of his. And so Haman would have known about the time that David's uh, baby from Bathsheba was sick. David was praying for the child that the Lord would relent of his discipline and let the child live. When the child died, David got up and he showered and he ate. And when his servants asked him about it, They said, when the child was sick, you were fasting and praying. Now you're acting like everything's fine. David's answer was, uh, he can't be with me right now, but I will be with him. So David understood that there was an afterlife in which God's people would stand together and know one another. Job, uh, again, incomplete knowledge of the afterlife, but he said, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he will stand upon the earth in triumph. And so he believed in a resurrection. And so Haman isn't giving bad theology about the grave. He's lamenting that if he died, what use was that? He would no longer be remembered by God in this sense. Someone else would take his place as a servant, writing songs and dispensing sage counsel. He uses the analogy of soldiers slain in battle. They're no longer useful in the ongoing warfare. Like a soldier whose fighting days were ended by death, Haman would be cut off from God's hand. His hand would no longer be upon him to use him as a tool of ministry. And this is more a sentiment that I can relate to. We can easily relate to it. Whenever someone is sick and we think it's premature, we can't see how their death serves God. We can see how their continued life would serve God, so we pray that they would live to fight uh, fight on as his soldier. We don't understand how death can serve any purpose in God's economy, especially premature death. Verse 6, You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the depths. Your wrath lays heavy upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. Selah. Haman felt like he was already dead, and he attributed it to God's wrath lying heavy upon him. Now, first, let's cut him some slack. In the Old Testament, things were a lot more physical. And by that I mean God had promised Israel material blessings if they obeyed him, but physical discipline if they disobeyed him. Haman was applying that principle to his own personal situation and concluding that since he had been sick his whole life and now he was dying, it must be God's wrath against him. Even today, with our fuller revelation of the grace of God, it's common for a believer to think his or her suffering is God's hand of discipline upon them. Now you know it can be, there are cases in the New Testament where God caused believers to be sick or to die as a discipline, but they were in obvious, notable sin. While it's a good idea to search your heart in your suffering, chances are it isn't the wrath of God lying upon you. I mean, in the book of Corinthians, we used that as our example last week, God was causing some to be sick and taking some home prematurely, killing them, because they were getting drunk at the communion table. And they were withholding their food from the poor. And so you look at that and you think, hey, there's a problem here. They didn't have to wonder, gee, am I sick because I'm uh, sinning? Yeah, of course you are. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, another interesting situation. Let's sell some property and keep some of the money for ourselves, but tell the church that we're giving all the money. That's a problem. And so usually you're not in that kind of a situation. Yes, you and I were sinners... But we're not in active, rebellious sin against God. And so, if you're sick and suffering, chances are pretty strong it's not God's discipline. It's because we live in a fallen world whose God is the devil. Sickness and death are going to exist until the return of the king. Selah seems to be a notation for the reader or the listener to pause momentarily and give what was just said or sung some further thought. Haman had just struck a note that needs our most serious contemplation. This is why we like at the end of our services now to wait uh, for about 5 or 10 or 15 minutes and sing a couple more songs and spend some time in prayer. It's our way of of selah-ing, if that's a word, and and thinking about what the Lord has been trying to show us. And I think it's a very valuable thing to do uh, and to just wait on the Lord in that way. Now we're going to be told to Salah some more in the next set of verses, verse 8. You have put away my acquaintances far from me. You've made me an abomination to them. I am shut up and I cannot get out. My eye wastes away because of affliction. Lord, I have called upon you daily. I have stretched out my hands to you. Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Selah. Haman sees himself as a prisoner, shut up, locked away in his cell, receiving no visits from his former acquaintances. Now, how might we relate to that? When we suffer, others do care. They care a lot. But their lives generally go on. They have jobs to go to, dinners to cook, vacations to enjoy. The contrast is stunning. They are relatively free while you are locked up in a cell of suffering. When he says here, my eye wastes away, it's a poetic way of describing the effect his much crying is having on him. His eyes were constantly wet and red with tears. You know, one thing you really can't hide, and that's when you've been crying hard. And you can tell, you said, no, no, I'm just having an allergic reaction. In a way, you are You're having an allergic reaction to suffering. Uh, but, uh, you know, when people cry, it just, and you, you just can't stop yourself. He just comes on, and, and you pour out the tears, and your eyes are red. Not just your eyeballs, but I mean everything around you, your whole face is shot. And that's what he's talking about here. He says, my eyes are wasted away with tears. And once again, he wonders what good his death can accomplish. It would seem only to detract from his otherwise important service to God. Props to Haman. He didn't want to live just for himself. He wanted to go on serving the Lord. He, he wanted to know that his life was meaningful. We want to give every suffering and every death some profound earthly meaning. It's just the way we're wired, but it's not always possible to find an earthly meaning. Here's an example, and I hope you won't take this the wrong way. Whenever I use this example, i misunderstood, but it's a great example. People die, and because we are in a more mobile, digital, fast society, we can set up things in their honor. Uh, in a way that wouldn't have happened maybe decades ago. So somebody dies, and in order to figure out why that person died, we establish a fund or a scholarship or something like that. And hey, that's great. It helps people. It furthers their cause. But, But it's wrong to think that person died because of this, so that we could establish this. And that somehow makes their death all worthwhile. You know what makes death worthwhile? Psalm 116.15 tells us, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. What makes death worthwhile is that a person is absent from their body and immediately present with the Lord. And it's better than that. We learn from the story of the rich man and Lazarus in the New Testament. What happens the moment a believer dies? Lazarus, uh, not the friend of Jesus but the poor beggar, dies. And the Bible says angels escorted him to heaven. Angels escorted him. And uh, actually to Hades, but uh, that was a temporary wait over until to Abraham's bosom, until he would get to heaven. And so on the strength of that, many commentators, most commentators feel that when a Christian dies, you are born by angels into the presence of God. Have you ever flown first class? One time in my life, I got to fly first class. We were actually on a missions trip with a bunch of kids from Central Valley Christian and uh, I guess they felt sorry for the two of us that were the leaders of the trip. And uh, I did my bent-over routine. You know. No, but I don't know why, but they upgraded us to first class. And it was nice. Nice, big chair. It's like going to the Tulare luxury theater. Have you guys been to Tulare and sat in the luxury theater out there? You don't even need to watch the movie. Just take a nap. I mean, it's just electric chair, and you're just, you know, up there. And uh, not the electric chair, but an electric chair. I don't want to be mistaken. First class. But you're still in an airplane. The food's not really... I mean, you know, the food can't be that good, really. You've got personal service, but to do what? Uh, and, And so, Angel Airlines is going to take you to heaven. And then the Bible says, a grand entrance has been supplied for you when you get there. It's going to be great. If angels rejoice when you got saved, how much more when you get home? With the homecoming that's prepared for you. That's what makes death meaningful. It's the celebration of it in heaven. Nothing on earth can compare to our going home. So, whatever you want to do, that's fine. If you want to establish something, you want to have a fund or a scholarship that helps other people, that's fantastic. I am not against that. I'm going to go on record saying that. Unless it takes away from what's really happening. And that is... The declaration that God is my salvation and he has delivered me once and for all. Verse 11 Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave or your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? As a singer songwriter, Haman extolled God's loving kindness and his faithfulness and his wonders. I think those are some of the themes that would come through in his songs. In death, he'd have no more songs to write to lead worshiping hearts to God. We all want our lives, and especially our service for God, to impact others. And Haman wanted more time in order to serve the Lord. I'm sure he had some songs he was working on, and some other ministries that he had his hand in that he was wanting to get done. But to you I have cried out, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? This would be Haman's version of the why question that asks for a final solution to the problem of pain and suffering. Since God can stop our suffering, why doesn't he? It is the number one complaint of non-believers. They see God as either unwilling or as unable to alleviate human suffering. Sad that they cannot see that he is long-suffering towards them, not willing they perish, but that they receive Salvation. God suffered for us in our place, in the person of Jesus Christ, to be the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. And if you've read the Bible, especially the book of the Revelation, you know He has a decisive plan that will end all human suffering forever. But when it's implemented, it will also end the opportunity for lost souls to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. And the only destination that is left for them will be hell separated from God for all eternity. And so when a person complains that God won't alleviate suffering, really it's because he is long-suffering, not willing that they perish, but that all would come to repentance. And when you read Revelation, you see God's going to move pretty rapidly in the end times. Once the uh, tribulation begins, it's a pretty fast seven years And even then, it's the grace of God's wrath because he's still calling out to people to get saved. His long-suffering will still wait and wait and wait until the last possible moment. It will wait until the end of the thousand years and the final rebellion of souls against God. But one day, all that suffering will end as God's long-suffering will also end and we will be in eternity. Verse 15, I've been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. I suffer your terrors. I'm distraught. If there's a clue to Haman's affliction in any of this, no one can find it. Whatever it was, it had followed him throughout his entire life. And what this tells us as a footnote is that in some cases, you can have a lifetime of suffering in the will of God. Many of you have received diagnoses like this, life-changing diagnosis, where you think, hey, if God doesn't miraculously heal me, this is the rest of my life, however long that's going to be. This is my lot in life. It would seem Haman had made the most of his life, despite his affliction, but in his heart, this was his struggle. He didn't say, hey, look at all that I've done as a crippled person, or as a leper, or whatever it is he was struggling with. He said, man, this hurts. Verse 16, your fierce wrath has gone over me, your terrors have cut me off. They came around me all day long like water, they engulfed me altogether. I see another analogy here, this time it's a shipwreck that every day kept him thinking he was drowning. In the 2014 feature film, Edge of Tomorrow, a soldier fighting aliens, who's played by Tom Cruise, he dies every day, only to relive each day, the day restarting every time he dies. Of course, in the movie, he figures out what to do, gets a little bit further each time, until he is victorious in the end. Haman started each day suffering... But there was no physical progress. There was no happy ending for him. He never figured it out. His ship sunk every time and he felt like he was going to drown. With this, we've arrived at the point in a psalm where the psalmist then gives us his climactic words of hope and strength, where it all turns around for us. And we see what God has shown him. Here's what Haman shows as his climax to all of this in verse 18. Loved one and friend, you have put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness. The end. Mic drop. (laughs) Wow. That's not what I was expecting at all. Where's the encouragement? By the way, the encouragement was back in verse 1. Haman's just writing things a little bit differently. The encouragement's in verse 1, in the context of the fact that... If you actually... I mean, we can't do this because it's the Bible, but you could take verse 1 and put it at the end and make it verse 18, move everything up one, and that'd be a great ending to this. God is the God of my salvation. He's my Lord. Despite everything that I've just said, He is the God of my salvation. It's just that Haman says it at the beginning, so that you'll... I think you need to be encouraged at the beginning because of how dark this psalm actually is. You might not ever get to the end of this. I'm done after verse 5. Let's move on to Psalm... I mean, Psalm 23 is like a walk in the park compared to this, you know. I'll take the valley of the shadow of death any day over what he's talking about. Haman seems here to have outlived all those who were once dear to him. I'm not sure if it is or not, but it, it sounds like morbid sarcasm. It's as if he was suggesting an earlier death would have been preferred over an old age lived suffering and alone. Are we not fickle? We want to be healed and not die and then as we get old we wish we had died younger because all of our friends are dead. Well, my dad died three or four years ago uh, 93, 94 uh, good old age my mom's still alive at 97 wow but uh, I was down there for a while, and uh, I asked my brothers, uh, I said, what are you guys going to do as far as funeral and services and stuff? And they said, there's no funeral. There's no services. And I thought that was strange at first, but they said, everybody your dad knows is dead, except for us. There's nobody to come to a funeral. He doesn't have any family, any friends. They're all gone. My mom, when I talked to her on the phone, she's so cute. He's super healthy for a 97-year-old. You know, her body's got to take some pains. But same situation. There's nobody other than us kids. Uh, you know, and so... And you know what? She sort of wants to die. I mean, not enough to do anything about it, obviously. And that's great. But she, you know, there's, she sort of wants to die. because. And, and you've talked to old people like that, haven't you? They just sort of want to die. They're ready to die and stuff. Well, Haman kind of accentuates that here in, in saying, hey... You know, why don't you I don't want to die, but I want to die. And it points out how, how fickle we can be. We last see Haman in darkness, but I think we understand he saw through the dark to God. Verse one more than makes up for the darkness of the next seventeen verses by its declarations of God's salvation and of his deliverance and of our submission. Praying may or may not alter the outcome of our suffering. That's on God to determine. But whatever the physical outcome, spiritually it causes me to see my great and mighty God and to see beyond into the glorious future He has in store for me, filled with light, by the way. When you get to the book of the Revelation, you find that there's no darkness, there's no night, there's no sun either. Well, how does that work? Because the Father and the Son are the light of that place. There may not be a way out of your troubles, but God is the way through them. Psalm 88 isn't hopeless, for one thing, when we're called upon to suffer. I'm encouraged that Haman suffered before us, and he left a record which, in and of itself, encourages us. Going to Psalm 88 is like going to a group meeting. Whatever you're suffering with, and Haman gets up and says, Hi, my name is Haman, let me tell you what I'm going through. And you think, wow, if you can accomplish all you accomplished and serve God all that you serve God, then I can do that too. For another thing, Haman reminds us that this present world is passing away. We're looking forward to the city whose builder and maker is God and to an eternity where there will be not so much as a single tear and not even a shadow. Don't succumb to night blindness. See through your darkness in prayer to the God who saves. His deliverance must come. If it isn't in this life, it certainly will be in the next, where angels bear you to Him to a grand entrance into heaven, being prepared for you right now. Let's pray.